Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to the new episode of the FEPS Talks, which is an absolutely extraordinary one. Today, yours and my guest is Katarina Bali, Vice President of the European Parliament, member of the European Parliament in S&D Group, responsible, among the others, as a member of the LIBE, Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs Committee, for overseeing such institutes as the Academy of the European Law. She has served on the national level as a Federal Minister of Justice and Consumer Protection, as also she has been Secretary General of the SPD. So a lot of experiences combined, but today we are welcoming her as the most prominent person inside of Socialist and Democrats family when it comes to the discussion about how to preserve and promote our democracies. Katarina, thank you so much for agreeing to meet with us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Let's kick off start. A year ago, uh, I was at the seminar where you presented a paper about uh, defending and deepening democracy. You made back then a lot of bold statements because of the deterioration of democracy, not only on the EU level, but specifically inside of the member states. That was still before Corona hit us as badly as it did and put an additional pressure. So if we look back at this year, what has changed? Well, a lot of things have changed. Actually, the two countries, the two member states where the situation is the worst, Poland and Hungary, have become, I would say, even more aggressive with this narrative in the sense that the governments uh, there do not only want to change their own countries into what they call illiberal democracies, which does not exist. Every democracy is liberal, meaning free, so into non-democracies. But they also want to export um, their notions, for example, of rule of law now into the rest of the European Union. So this is a new development. And on the other hand, we do have new mechanisms Uh, within the European Union to defend ourselves, to defend the European values. This has been a long, exhausting process. And now we have these instruments and we have to see how the Commission um, is going to apply them. Exactly. But, uh, you know, you mentioned the mechanism. It seems that uh, there have been uh, quite few developments uh, because the mechanism that you've mentioned has been a massive fight, wasn't it? Well, actually, it's it's about two mechanisms. Uh, one is what we call the rule of law monitoring report so that every country in the European Union is being monitored uh, concerning its state of the rule of law. And I think this is very good because you can now compare the state of the rule of law in all the member states. We have seen, especially in Poland and Hungary, that they made up a kind of anti-Eastern narrative saying uh, this is a fight the West against the East and you want to impose things on us. So now you have this report and you see that in all the 27 member states, there are things to improve when it comes to the rule of law. Not one is perfect, which is normal. States are not perfect, but it's very different. And it's not that all the member states in the West are fine and all the member states in the East are not. It's very, very individual. And you have to look at each country specifically. So this is very, very important. And the second mechanism is the one that you mentioned, is the conditionality mechanism, which means that if you have a member state that constantly and and systematically violates the rule of law, that then the commission can deprive them of funding. And now this is a very powerful means, of course, because 
especially people like Orban, even more than Kaczynski, he is actually only interested in power and money. He's a very, very corrupt man, um, the corruptest probably of all the heads of government in the, in, in the European Union. So getting money for him is absolutely fundamental. So we, we are waiting for the commission to apply this new mechanism, which is so powerful, but it refuses to up to now. But it seems uh, the ongoing uh, debates, though, because uh, the uh, mechanism and the conditionality attached to that was supposed to see the first review uh, by uh, July. Um, but when we look at the uh, updates when it comes to infringement of the European uh, community uh, laws, we see uh, Poland, Hungary, but not only, but those uh, are the examples you've mentioned, quite consistently uh, coming very high when it comes to breaking the laws, let it be environment or uh, any others. When it comes to the democracy principles, uh, they indeed are claiming, you know, we've been democratic elected, we are empowered to do what we do. And last but not least, uh, I think the criticism is that, uh, you know, while now we are talking about the next generation EU, uh, the conditionality mechanism very much attaches to the budgetary, to MFF as a perspective. So do you think that indeed, uh, you know, you say, well, the commission is dragging its feet. Uh, we have this context in which they are not exactly cooperative. So can we expect a breakthrough? I think we can if, if the commission does its work. It has been stated that the, the conditionality will not only apply to the normal budgets, but also to the next generation EU. So I think the commission is, is, is fine with that. And when you, when you say, yes, these governments have been democratically elected, this is of course true. This is what they say also. But you must not mix up rule of law with rule by law. I mean, if you have a majority, of course, you can make laws and then these rules apply. And that is that is the same in every democracy. So this is but this is ruling by law. Even if you do that in a formally legally way, then these these laws that you pass as a majority can violate the rule of law. For example, if they um, destroy the independence of the judiciary, then you can have the majority, you can have a 99% majority in parliament. And if you pass a law that destroys the independence of your judiciary, then you violate the rule of law or the separation of powers or um, the rights of minorities, etc. So being elected, even with a vast majority, does not give you an excuse for, for violating fundamental principles that are enshrined in Article 2 of our treaties, and the rule of law is, is the most fundamental of that. I absolutely could uh, only second to that because I find uh, the discussions also on the floor of the European Parliament uh, striking and appalling when you hear this kind of arguments. Now we are in power, we have the power, we decide, which is as far as one can imagine from any idea of democratic discourse and dialogue. But speaking about that, I mean... If I, if I may interrupt you there, because otherwise I will forget, what is really, really striking is that on the one hand, they say in our, in our country, we have the majority, so we do what we want. But on the other hand, they do not want to accept that in the European Parliament, they are a minority. So if, if that was their discourse then they would have to say, well, then in Europe, the others have the majority and they would have to accept that. But of course, this is how they work. They always pick 
the parts of arguments that suit them best and it's not consistent absolutely and i think uh, you know also uh, to give the whole fairness and that's uh, something i want to briefly touch now about the commissioners uh, in charge of the portfolio such as helena dali have been making use of that saying right uh, the uh, gender equality in the dimension of the women right to choose might not be prerogative of the uh, european union but uh, independent and right judiciary system is and uh, since the decision is by the constitutional tribunal in Poland that we can possibly recognize post reform uh, that gives a space and a window of opportunity and i think you know when it comes to the reaction of the european parliament about the gender equality issues and precisely the uh, women's strike in Poland but also the lgbtqi community those are the two very good example of how the european parliament not only defends but also promotes democracy and that's something i would like to perhaps uh, take the conversation into what are other possibilities to strengthen democracy because defending is one thing but of course democracy is a system we need to continue building yes and i completely agree and we have to try at all levels uh, possible so so this conditionality mechanism that we talked about is is kind of the latest the, the last level it's it's really when nothing else helps anymore then then you have to kind of punish or find sanctions but you have to start much more in advance of course and that means first of all democracy building building up democracy democratic education so we have for example the rights and values program which gives funds to for these purposes and supports organizations in the member states who who do that we have the european democracy action plan where also a lot of possibilities are being described and also some that secure democratic forces and protect them uh, are supposed to protect them for example against hate speech against disinformation etc so we have a whole range of possibilities and what helena dali did when you mention her name she did very something very smart when in poland these lgbti free zones were declared so regions that actually kind of put next to their city name um, we are lgbti free that she actually took away funding from these regions which before even we had this conditionality mechanism by saying my funds are dedicated to the mutual understanding of people to um to living together peacefully etc and and if you declare yourself an lgbti free zone you're not in line with this anymore so and then we take i take away your funding i found that was extremely courageous uh, of her and and smart the right thing to do it was a clear signal but of course the fundings in these areas are quite small so what the polish government did is they paid these entities the triple of what they had they would have got from the european union so as long as we have to act on such a small scale it will not have the effect we want to but still i, I think it's it's these signs that we have to put up we do not tolerate anti-democratic and discriminatory uh, actions in the european union
I think uh, it also tackles a very important uh, point because uh, the European Union, I mean, frequently, I mean, if you look at the opinion polls, uh, the citizens in the countries uh, that we've named consider themselves uh, pro-European against all the odds. But at the same time, uh, they would like the European Union to act uh, more swiftly, to be there more on the ground, which not always is possible. Funding for the uh, non-government organization is one of the avenues, but most evidently, like in Poland, where the organization is helping the victims of domestic violence have been questioned about the right to exist, it's very difficult for the European Union to surpass uh, the national level and uh, continue with the fundings. And that's perhaps another issue I want to uh, use our conversation to briefly uh, spot on, because you've mentioned, okay, conditionality mechanism. Now we are going to have a report, so we will be able to move away from the West-East divide. Every country is going to be treated in the same way. But we do have some other reports. So we have uh, seen uh, the uh, European uh, Institute for Gender Equality producing very good reports for years by now. And we know that some countries refuse to give data. The violence against women is one of the examples when uh, it's a gray area not being covered. And uh, the other is uh, the uh, quite a new uh, still instrument, which is the annual report on human rights that we saw last uh, September. So we are getting more and more knowledge But taking the context of, uh, you know, Article 7 has been activated already such a long time ago when it comes to Hungary, the citizens in the countries would like the European Union to act perhaps more drastically. You know, where do we stand on that? What's proportional reaction, actually? Yes, well, you're completely right. We have a lot of institutions. The Fundamental Rights Agency is one, uh, Greco, which is very active, Olaf on corruption. So we have a lot of entities in the European Union that actually have all the data, all the expertise. And I'm also a member of the Rule of Law Monitoring Group. We include this expertise regularly. We invite these people to report, etc. And the Commission, apparently, will also do this in this exercise when it comes to the, the conditionality mechanism. And they have already done so in this annual monitoring that we've seen now once and 2021 is going to be the second. So I think we have all the knowledge present. The point is, what consequences do we draw from that? And this is where it comes back to the instruments that the, the European Union has at hand. And up to now, they have not been very many. So it it all focuses back again on the conditionality mechanism. I think this will really be key because we fought so hard for it, because the resistance was so hard from especially Poland and Hungary who voted against it, one has to know, that this brings it to a test now. Because in the end, it has to be the commission that acts. The parliament can push. The parliament might even go to the European Court of Justice to have the commission forced to act. But we cannot act by ourselves. So so it comes back to this one question. Is the commission serious about it? Is the commission really going to do what it has to do? And, and everything will depend on this. So there's much hope pinned, a very cross-cutting moment uh, ahead of us, uh, June, July, as if there hadn't been so many challenges uh, in place, but uh, a massive uh, point of testing. But when we come to that period of time, it is also a beginning of the new presidency, which comes into the hands of Slovenia, which, yes, I see you taking a very deep breath, because uh, most evidently what has been happening in Slovenia in the course of the last year 
has been particularly worrying. So how can we expect uh, the cooperation of the presidency on that when so many doubts are about the direction that Slovenia is picking at the moment? Yes, this is something that worries me very much. The prime minister of Slovenia, Janis Janša, is a buddy of Viktor Orban. Um, it is said that Viktor Orban financed parts of his uh, campaign, his election campaign. And the the main, uh, Janis Janša, by the way, was the one prime minister, the one European prime minister who congratulated Donald Trump uh, on his victory in, in November. And if you look at how he works, he uses a lot of strategies that uh, Donald Trump also uses or you used to use unfortunately so what mainly concerns us in Slovenia is the freedom of media so he actually copies uh, Viktor Orban's approach from 2010 to, to to start his attack on democracy with the media it's not the only one but it's because he everyone can see in Hungary that if you eliminate critical media you then it's then much easier of course to destroy other parts of democracy because you don't have anyone who can complain publicly um, with with a lot of power behind it. So this is what he's doing at the moment. Um, he, he is trying to. He has not succeeded yet completely. So there is still critical media. And this, this is why it is a, a such an important period of time now because now it decide, it's being decided which, which way Slovenia is going to go. And um, yes, from, from July on, Slovenia is going to take over the presidency. And this is something that, is, that really worries me a lot. We have had Janis Janša in the rule of law monitoring group. And it was really something that we have never witnessed before with all the governments that we have invited before. The rule of law monitoring group is a group that works internally. So we, we really try to investigate, find out, engage into a conversation with governments as well as NGOs and media, etc., to really find out what is going on. So we invited the Slovenian government and he was the first prime minister to insist that the meeting would be web streamed. And we thought, hmm, that's interesting. But we said, why not? We, had, we don't have anything to hide. And then he appeared, instead of making his, his points, he wanted to show a video. And you can see this video, you can watch it on, on Twitter. And he's, he's doing this kind of video all the time. Of course, it's, it, to me, it, it looks like a communist video. It's very, you know, with, with these methods that they apply, you know, to demonize everyone else. And they are the heroes, the victims, as well as the saviors. It's, it's very much like that. And, and our chair, she said, no, um, first of all, you, you, you sent this video like 10 minutes before the meeting. And then please make your point with words. I mean, that's what we're in Parliament for. And he refused to. And then they argued for 10 minutes. And then he, we asked questions. And in the middle of my question, he disconnected. He just left. So if this person or is, is the, the head of the government that is going to take over the presidency of the council, if this is the way that he faces criticism, then it doesn't leave me very optimistic. But I mean, on the other hand, the, the, the power of the of the council presidency is limited. So I hope that he won't be able to do too much damage. 
and it's only six months. <laughs> well, six months can be like a long verdict, uh, uh, especially for the European Union in such a crucial point where, you know, the future is being discussed. Next generation uh, uh, is being put in place, all that. But, you know, in a period a bit longer than this, we are also going to look at the elections in Hungary. And, you know, we've been around in this conversation, the arguments, right, if you gain power, it doesn't mean that you can disregard democracy. To the contrary, you should be the one uh, standing on that principle and safeguard that you have responsibility. But in Hungary, we have uh, quite a lot of developments also vis-a-vis the European Union level. And I absolutely have to ask you about that because it has been a long-standing argument uh, from the side of the progressive forces, uh, S&D included, that uh, EPP is in fact shielding Fidesz by allowing that to be part of the group. Uh, we all remember also that at the most critical summits, uh, Viktor Orban would suddenly appear with the goodies back uh, of EPP on his arm, uh, so sort of using this affiliation whenever it was handed to him. Uh, now they left, uh, you know, a year before the combo elections in Hungary, they are leaving the EPP group. And at the same time, they are even more tightening up the grip on any sort of the variety of the uh, public opinion possibilities. Uh, the media is back on track. So what can be expected actually in Hungary and what can be expected inside of the European Parliament with this, you know, longer awaited but still always kind of, uh, you know, astonishing departure? Uh, That is a very interesting question. And I'm very curious how we will look back at this period of time, like in one, two years time. Because within the EPP group, the conservative group, it used to be, especially the German uh, delegation, that was very much protecting Viktor Orban and Fidesz. Um, And he overdid it by attacking especially Manfred Weber, the head of the group, um, who is German by with some sort of Nazi notions. But concerning what is going to change within Hungary, that is really difficult to say because Viktor Orban and Fidesz do draw a lot of their power from very good relations with the German economy, especially the car producing uh, companies. So I wonder, I'm not sure if leaving EPP and breaking with uh, CDU CSU, who really held their their shields over him for a long, long time, if that might lead to more reflection within the German economy, if, if that leads to any consequences, I don't know. But I do raise this topic everywhere. That, that people are aware that our companies are, I mean, they don't, they're not doing anything illegal. But of course, by taking advantage of all the offers that Orban makes, they, they are strengthening him. So I wonder if, if this will backfire on him domestically. When it comes to the European Union, it's going to be very interesting how these anti-democratic forces Um, how they meet up. I mean, if Viktor Orban announced to gather all of them in one group. Now, if they they do that, that will be a different story because we have the Peace Party in Poland who are ECR, which is another more conservative group than EPP. And then we have, for example, the German IFD who are in ID, which is even more to the right. We have the Liga Nord. We have all sorts of political forces. Um, I wonder if if they really all agree. I mean, they only agree on one thing, that they are two, maybe, that they are against everything that sounds left and ready to define everything that they don't like as left. 
Um, Yanis Jansha, the Slovenian prime minister, even now defined EPP, whom he is member of, as leftist. Um, and the other one is being against migrants. Uh, I think that's the two points that they can, uh, can, can actually unite upon. I think apart from that, there are many differences. So I don't know. Uh, it, can, it can become very uncomfortable in the European Parliament, but let's wait and see. Well, uh, this is a very much of a cliffhanger, um, especially that the uh, tectonic shifts, political tectonic shifts are happening. And I think perhaps in this mandate, uh, differently than in the previous one, we, uh, we of course see that they have a lot of difficulty to unite because being against something uh, is not yet enough to create a political amalgamate uh, when it comes to unite for a real strategy. But at the same time, they have also proven in the course of the last, especially 12, 15 months, as very effective when it comes to obstruction. And, you know, we've just discussed the uh, rule of uh, low conditionality. Uh, whilst they couldn't act directly upon that, they act on the budget. Um, and we have a lot of profound decisions happening in front of us. So, you know, uh, you've given the European Union and the Commission the deadline of uh, June, July. Uh, we will be closely monitoring. But uh, since we have you, and I promise that this is the last question, but I can't help myself not asking. The elections in Germany are coming. Uh, so, uh, you know, what are the prospects there? Can we be at least, you know, we've spoken about so many things that we are uncertain or trying to be hopeful, but can we be hopeful when it comes to the German elections instead? Um, well, things are moving in Germany very much. Um, I think they are everywhere because of the pandemic. And usually in times of crisis, you see a, a phenomenon that is called rally around the flag so that if the voters gather around the party of the head of government, which in our case would be uh, the Conservatives. And that was the case for quite a while, but uh, we have two factors playing. One is that Angela Merkel will not run again after 16 years, and she is quite unique as a politician, I would say, having worked closely with her. There is no one near to replace her in the Conservative Party. And the second point is that at the moment, daily, there are severe cases of corruption and um, and similar cases popping up in the Conservative Party daily. And many of them are related with, uh, with Corona, with uh, people, MPs earning money with contracts on masks, etc., et which is really disgusting and people are disgusted. So the Conservatives are dropping dramatically in the polls. They are at something like 26 now or and our problem is that at the moment, the second force in the polls is not us, it's the Greens. Because at the moment, well, first of all, a lot of people think because of climate change, etc., that they should take responsibility. And secondly, because a lot of people in Germany are angry because of the corona management. So it, they, they turn away from the government as a whole where we are part of. On the other hand, when it comes to, person to, to, to personality, Olaf Scholz, who will run for, our, for the Social Democrats, is probably the closest you can get personality-wise to Angela Merkel, not politically, but personality-wise. He's also very, very calm, very, very controlled, very little uh, um, vain. Um, and he, he has proven to be a good leader. So we hope... Up to now, we are the only party to have designated a candidate. The others have not, none. So we hope that when it comes down to, to who do you want to be the leader, 
that then we will rise in the polls and and then in the end be successful in the elections. Well, the couple of months that are left is, uh, as said, can be a long verdict in case of politics, but we do hope and we keep our fingers enormously uh, hardly uh, pressed uh, for all the colleagues and comrades in the SPD uh, and uh, for the elections that are coming. I am so grateful on behalf of our audience uh, for you, Katarina, for having given us your time and insights into the discussion. I definitely take on that uh, June, July is the historical moment perhaps of a story that at the moment has not been on the spotlight, but we have to make utmost to make it precisely to be in the focus if we are to be serious about discussing the future of Europe. Um, of course, on our side, we will be very happy to get engaged in the ways we can to promote and uh, help uh, safeguarding democracy and the rule of law. Without that, one cannot talk about equal opportunities, freedom, solidarity, and right to self-determination that so many hold dear, especially in times of COVID. Thank you so, so much for being with us. Thank you. I think uh, this I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that you raised all these questions and, and that you are engaging in this, in this discussion. I think we really have to talk so much more about what is happening uh, in Europe and, and how decisive these t- times are and have everyone engage. It's, it's so important and everyone can do something. If you, if you want to help, then just support these people who are fighting for democracy and freedom in their member states. Even if it's only on social media by liking and sharing tweets and posts, um, that's already something to give them, to make them know that they are being heard. That is very important already. Thank you so much. Katarina Bali, Vice President of the European Parliament, has been Fabstocks and your guest today. Don't hesitate to follow up. Thank you so much. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Fabstalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.